Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. Fred Waugh lives in Vancouver and the West Kootenays. He was Canada's Parliamentary Poet Laureate from 2011 to 2013 and made an Officer of the Order of Canada in 2013. His award-winning poetry, fiction, and non-fiction books include Sentenced to Light, Collaborations with Visual Artists, Is a Door, a series of poems about hybridity, Music at the Heart of Thinking, and Scree, the collected earlier poems, which was published in 2015. The Simple, with a page stretching out from my feet, is a new chapbook of Fred's taken from the ninth annual Page Lecture, presented in October 2020 by Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Fred gets back on the Zoom box today to talk about that lecture, about music at the heart of thinking, which is referenced in the lecture, about serial form and probably a few other things. I have been meaning to do an interview with you for about 10 years at least, so I'm grateful that we're finally there by uh, the virtue of Zoom to talk about these things. Well, you're pretty busy. <laughs> I've, I've noticed you're pretty busy. <laughs> I, uh, I, I I told uh, Daphne that uh, because of a, a medical condition, I was considered, that's considered indolent. I said, and it's and the situation's mutating, and I'm an indolent mutant. And she said, "Paul, you are the least indolent person I know." <laughs> that's what she said. So, and I know she's your good friend. So I thought you'd appreciate that. Um, but seriously, very grateful to have you uh, in this uh, in this way and uh, to pick your fine mind. Phil Hall invited you to talk about your approach to the page, and that's how you got started right? with the simple. That's right. Yeah. And um, from that idea, you, you thought you'd take off from Charles Olson and that uh, with a page stretching out from my feet is just a slight tweak of Charles Olson. Yeah, the page lectures are delivered annually at uh, Queen's University and they're in honor of Joanne Page, a fine Canadian poet who's passed away uh, many years ago. But um, anyway, there's every year there's a lecture and the direction was to... Uh, address notions of the page, uh, I guess, in composition. And uh, luckily, I had just, uh, I was starting to think about this, this talk I was supposed to give there and this beautiful book by Stan Dragland, a wonderful Canadian poet and critic and, and writer uh, called The Difficult. I don't know if you can see that. I can't see the title in it. Anyway, it's a book called The Difficult. And it's, Stan has been a critic or he's written about books for many, many years, and uh, I've known him for a a long time. But this book takes on the notion of reading those texts, which many of us find difficult. You know, they're, they're experimental texts or they're innovative texts in some way or another, and they don't lend themselves easily to sort of a general, the general reader. Unfortunately, that's the way, uh, if you like innovative writing, uh, happens to be. But it has insights into the reading of, into how to read the difficult, which are quite amazing. It's just a wonderful discussion of a number of uh, different texts. And he focuses a lot on uh, one of my favorite novels recently, The Obituary by Gail Scott, which is... (laughs) <laughs> it is a novel, but it's it's actually a poem or a poetic novel. It's very it's very engaging in a innovative way in the way she plays with narrative and the way she plays with little literally with the words with the language. And uh, so she it's got this spread that I like in writing, which is a writing that addresses the material that the writer is working with, pays homage, if you like to the uh, essence of words, syllables, vowels, lines, whatever dynamics the actual language invents for itself as one's writing. Without that, as Keats said about Coleridge, that uh, irritating uh, reaching after fact and reason, or that- Irritable irritable reaching after fact and reason. Irritable reaching after fact and reason. You know, that whole notion of intent and setting up expectation from your text that is, in a sense, 
outside of, frequently outside of the words themselves. And the words themselves are sort of the least, uh, uh, we, 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 they're transparent, we don't see them. They're just sort of off to the side. So I'm interested in writing that is that foregrounds the materiality of text, that foregrounds the material materiality of, uh, or the dynamics of, of how the words are being put together. So uh, I've had to find ways in my writing life to uh, adapt to the whole notion of composition as uh, as body, as breath, as, uh, if you like, improvisation. I, I, as I, I started out in my, in my, as a youth, I, was, I played trumpet and jazz, jazz trumpet, and I got really very interested in, I wasn't a great trumpeter. I wasn't, a, you know, I didn't, I didn't go on with it, but I really got interested in, the, in how one improvises in jazz and uh, explored that and thought a lot about it. And it carried over into into my poetry writing. And I found poetry, frankly, a little more accessible than getting together with a jam session or something. You know, there's the, there's the typewriter, there's a, there's a poem, there's something that I want to get into. So the whole notion of improvisation started me uh, into language with that, that same sense of, that is in music of indeterminacy. That is what I loved about Jazz is the indeterminacy. You don't know what's coming next. You know, and the most exciting jazz is that jazz that explores those possibilities of undetermined progress, if you like, or undetermined movement. So, When you think about the page, Composition by Field was the subtitle of Projective Verse. And, of course, you study with Charles Olson. I'd like to talk to, about that. But Olson in Projective Verse quoted Creeley, form is never more than an extension of content. And then Denise Levertov had a friendly amendment to that, which I think is exactly what you're saying now. Form is never more than a revelation of content. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I would think that's uh, <laughs> Levertov got that, that right. Yeah, and um, both of those, uh, actually all three of those people I just mentioned, were at the 1963 Vancouver Poetry Conference, which you attended and which you taped. And right. the, the tapes of those are, are quite a valuable document, so thank you for that. There's so many different threads that I can get into from that, but I'd like to go into the Olson thing, because you went to Buffalo and you studied with Olson, did you not, near the end of his life? I did. I, after I finished at UBC, I went to, uh, I went to Albuquerque, New Mexico to study for, to work, work with Creeley for a year. And I missed the North. I, I missed the green of the North. And, and I was, I got, I was interested in linguistics and frankly, I didn't find what I was looking for there. And of this program at the University of Buffalo in uh, State University of New York at Buffalo opened up and invited so it was a fantastic occasion where Al Cook, the chairman of the English department at that time, invited poets, young poets from around the world, from anywhere, who were interested in a graduate program in poetics. And I applied and I got accepted and got a, you know, a, fel a teaching fellowship, etc. After Olson left Vancouver in 63, uh, he ended up going to Buffalo. He was hired at Buffalo. So there was a chance to move, you know, in a sense from Creeley to Olson. I mean, I, uh, I had worked with Creeley for, in Vancouver and in Albuquerque. And of course, Creeley later on in his life went to Buffalo as well. But it was the opportunity to work with Olson. But there was also the opportunity to work with Henry Lee Smith Jr., a well-known phoneticist, a phonetic linguist, descriptive linguist there at the time. So I worked on a program of if you like poetry and linguistics and uh, and I took Olson seminars and uh, it was one of those occasion where, occasions where there was a great community of young poets all of a sudden in Buffalo and Olson was there very inspiring um, there was a lot of energy a lot of magazines were started uh, a community was formed and that was a very substantial and substantive part of of my uh, my life, my, my growth as a writer. And Olson was Olson taught basically two seminars, taught a course in mythology and literature, 
and taught a course in uh, poetry. There were di very different courses, but there was a lot of overlap because they were sort of, this was total Olson mythology and poetry. To go back to the difficult, as Stan Draglin calls it, Olson certainly in that category of poets, it has occurred to me as I heard about the difficulty of these poets and read them or attempted to read them in certain cases, I read them and it, there's a certain moment where I get how their mind works. It's almost like a trapdoor opens and I fall in. And then the next thing I read from them is easier because I have some sense of how their mind works. But the trick is investing enough time so that you have some sense of how their mind works and then the work becomes less difficult. Has that been the case for you or do you, do you see that as a, a one way to look at this? Uh, I suppose it was, it was uh, reading and rereading, but at the time that I came upon Olson and Creeley and Duncan and, and uh, the San Francisco Renaissance poets and so forth, the New American Poets, 1945-1960, had been published by Donald Allen in, uh, I think, 1961 it came out. Anyway, it wasn't so much having to become acclimatized to a new poetry as being excited by a different poetry. In other words, in 1960, most of us who had been educated in that, as I said, uh, in, a, in, in that kind of colonized mind, of uh, English literature aimed at Europe and very much overburdened by that inherited European uh, voice, if you like, or that whole European poetics. The excitement of what, you know, Olson was doing in the Maximus poems and, and, and Creeley and Duncan and Ginsburg's Howl and all of a sudden in the 60s, around, you know, in the late 50s, early 60s, there was this difference and it was just, uh, I'm not so sure. I, I certainly didn't understand Olson when I first read him. In a sense, I wasn't too concerned about understanding. What I was interested in was that just this energy, this incredible energy of difference and newness and a different approach to the poem, a different approach to the possibilities of writing, writing the poem. But of course, the Maximus poems, I had never been exposed to a kind of poetic project other than, you know, Paradise Lost or, or, or something like that. Uh, so this was, a, this was a poetic project that was fascinating. We had to learn a lot about, you know, what's he getting at? Who's the, what's this Maximus? What, what's, what's all this Greek stuff? I mean, I still don't. I, I read Olson now and I, I don't know half of the references. I, I, I you know, or Pound. You know, we had sort of had our, you know, our baby teeth uh, got into into the cantos early on, and that was a struggle in itself. So we knew that we knew that what we called sort of modern at that time modern poetry was difficult, but it was exciting. Its difficulty was exciting, and so trying to find out how to read this new writing. I remember. I remember. Um, George Bowering and Lionel Kearns and Pauline and I had a little seminar with Warren Tallman in Vancouver. Uh, you know, we'd meet, we'd meet at his house once a week just to read the cantos. We thought, okay, and Warren invited us to, let's do this. Let's, we'll do this little course on the cantos. I don't think we ever got past canto four. I mean, we just, <laughs> we just spent hours and hours and hours reading and re reading out loud, not necessarily talking about it intelligently, but experiencing it. And that was, uh, that sort of blew me away that, gee, you don't have to, you don't have to understand this stuff. You just have to experience it. And that was, that was a real opener that the poetry could be simply an experience in language and, and form and, uh, its content was, it didn't matter what the content was, you know, so-called what it was about or uh, its, uh, its sort of meaning, its level of meaning. That was there, sure, but you could 
go to a thesaurus, you could go to a, a mythological dictionary, and you could start, you know, researching Jane Allen Harrison and Dromanon and all these references that these that these more intelligent and educated poets had. But uh, that wasn't what was going on for at least for me and for most of the poets I was uh, hanging around with. It was this was like this was like jazz. This was new music. This was. <laughs> This I was gonna, exciting. I was going to say, no one uh, listens to Kind of Blue and says, okay, but what does it mean? <laughs> right? Yeah, um, and we had, you know, and in the 50s, we had been sort of raised on that 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 new jazz, that, that you know, Kind of Blue. And all of it. And so we knew it was possible in other art forms. And, and of course, it did become possible in most other art forms, that whole sense of, you know, just pushing and just moving ahead into something unknown. The word that, one of the words that Stan Dragland uses to describe music at the heart of thinking is terrier-esque. How do you describe, I mean, first of all, do you like that he calls, I, I think you like that he calls your work terrier-esque, uh, but what do you get from there? What do you think he means? Uh, that it's difficult, but that it's, if you work hard at it, I mean, if, I guess the, the reference to the terrier and the, that incredible unyielding bite that a terrier can bring to its <laughs> to a piece of meat <laughs> to a leg or to whatever to a towel to a, a toy that sense of you really have to get your teeth into it you really it's 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 uh, it hurts <laughs> I think I think of our former president of the illustrious George W. Bush, who once said, I am a pit bull on the pant leg of opportunity or something like that. <laughs> so, yeah, that's taking it yeah, a step I up. I, I guess you could say I guess you could say I'm interested in bullish poetry. But, you know, I thought Terrier-esque was uh, was a nice term that Stan used, not just for uh, I mean, he uses it in referring to music, the hard thinking. Uh, which has been around for a while, but um, he, he uses it as a, an approach to how to deal with a difficult text. Uh, that is that as a reader and as a writer, we can't kind of sit back and depend upon our, our irrelevant expectations of how this text is going to perform in how it presents itself. Oh, here's a novel. Let's just, you know, it's, oh, this is what a novel is. Then here's a poem. This is what a poem should be. You know, that's poetry and that's not poetry. You call that poetry? Some of you know, somebody will frequently, I hear that frequently. You call that poetry? I <laughs> punch it. Well, the difficult is uh, if you're a terrier and a terrier of a reader or a writer, I guess you go at it with teeth barred. You get, try to, uh, uh, in a sense, move into it with energy with uh with intent with not so much with intention but with desire to get hold of it grab hold of it so it's that desire there's a lot of energy there and i like poetry that has that kind of energy of where is it going to go how's it going to move and not that kind of complacent sitting back the kind of poetry that has those ominous endings <laughs> proclaimed right at the right in the first stanza, and you know, oh well, I know where this is going. There go, there go, there go all his pronouns again. <laughs> I'm re I'm reminded of a line from the book um, that you're quoting someone, Tom Wayman. How do you avoid writing poems with an ominously predictable ending? I think that's yeah, what you're talking well, about. <laughs> yeah, I thought that I thought Tom, that was a pretty good description by Tom of the of kind of poetry that. I mean, we write very different kinds of poetry, Tom and I, but that notion of trying to avoid that sense that of complacency, that this is what the poem is, and I, or I'm, I'm happy to be here because I know where it's going to go. I don't even have to be here. I just know it's going to kind of, that's where it's going to end up. Tying a nice little bow at the end of it, um, something trite usually. The phrase, music at the heart of thinking, is just such a brilliant phrase to describe what you've been talking about uh, in this chat. How did that come to you? And um, can you elaborate? I mean, that that's pretty much what poetry is. It's music at the heart of thinking, as it's in your hands and the people that you have been inspired by. I was 
in traffic and I was at a sitting at a red light and it was around noon hour. I was in Winnipeg and the sun was blinding. I remember that there's a lot of snow around. It was in the middle of winter and Doug and the slugs came on with their new album and, and it's called music for the heart of hearing. Now, I don't know how I heard that. Why I heard that. I just, I, why I all of a sudden switched to, Oh, music at the heart of thinking <laughs> music for the heart of hearing. So that's <laughs> the, the, the title sort of just fell in, fell out of the radio. If you like fell into my lap. And uh, then I went with that and I thought, yeah, that's, that feels pretty good to put together that notion of the mind at work along with some sense of, of music uh, and some sense of grounding the intellect, if you like, or grounding how the mind works in, in a music, in music, because we don't ask music what it means. We don't, we, we hear it. And I love that sense that thinking doesn't have to be aimed at sort of explanation and, um, and resolution and, and that, but that can be seen as an experience that we, you know, just an experience of listening, if you like. One makes the difference is both the introduction to music at the heart of thinking and the first poem, which is really interesting. I'd love it if you could read that. And maybe also then the first music of the heart of thinking poem after that, is that possible? Yeah, that's, I think it's a long one, though, isn't it? Is that... That's a little over a page. Take your time. No hurry. Yeah, okay. Well, let's try this. These are, uh, for, you know, for your listeners or whoever's listening to this, these are prose poems. So one of the things I try to, when I'm, in, I'm interested in the prose poem as a, as a way to intervent that the tyranny of the sentence and how syntactic phraseology can take over, <laughs> take over our expectations. To say I don't understand what this means is at least to recognize that this means. The problem is that meaning is not a totality of sameness and predictability. Within each word, each sentence, meaning has slipped a little out of sight and all we have are traces, shadows, still warm ashes. The meaning available from language goes beyond the actual instance of this word, that word. A text is a place where a labyrinth of continually revealing meanings are available. A place that offers more possibility than we can be sure we know, sometimes more than we want to know. It isn't a container, static and apparent. Rather, it is noisy, frequently illegible. Reading into meaning starts with a questioning glance, a seemingly obvious doubloon on a mast. The multiplicity can be read, should be read, even performed. But then again, perhaps meaning is intransitive and unreadable, only meant to be made. No sooner do we name meaning than it dissipates. As a sure thing, it eludes us. It arouses us to attempt an understanding, to interpret. But this is usually unsatisfying since whatever direction we approach from only leads us to suspect there is no one direction. No single meaning is the right one because no right ones stand still long enough to get caught. But because we do not know does not mean we are lost. Something that's strangely familiar, not quite what we expect, but familiar is present. That quick little gasp in the daydream, a sudden sigh of recognition, a little sock of baby breath. Writing into meaning starts out the white page, nothing but intention. This initial blinding clarity needs to be disrupted before we are tricked into settling for a staged and diluted paradigm of the real, the good old familiar, inherited, understandable, unmistakable lucidity of phrase that feels safe and sure, a simple sentence, just like the last time sentence. One makes the difference. Meaning generates and amplifies itself, beyond itself, but never forgets. Fragments of its memory and its potency exceed itself with meaning full of desire and can only be found hiding between the words and lines and in a margin large enough for further thought. Music at the heart of thinking. Go ahead. So, and you wanted me to read the next one? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's so brilliant. Oh, I love that so much. But, Thank you. 
yeah, reading one would be good too. This is the first one of the music of the heart of thinking was actually um, contextualized as a response or was part of a response to uh, a call by BP Nickel. He and Frank Davy were editing Open Letter and they wanted to edit, edit some special issues of Open Letter magazine talking about the whole notion of notation. And so he invited me to write something about notation. Well, I don't write a, I, I find it very hard to write about anything. <laughs> so this was the first piece that I wrote, if you like, about notation. Number one, don't think thinking without heart, no such separation within the acting body takes a step without all of it, the self propelled into doing the thing, for example, the horse, and on the earth as well, picking up the whole circuit feet first, feel the waves tidal, and even outside to moon and sun, it's okay to note, notate only one of those things without knowing fixed anyway, some heart sits in the arms of. I just love the way that moves, the way the language moves. Uh, it and maybe it's my appreciation of uh, and background in jazz, but um, that's just so alive. And I think there was a, a notion in the introduction. Uh, one makes the difference regarding safety. Unmistakable lucidity of phrase that feels safe and sure. A simple sentence. And I think that's if you were the kind of person who grouped poets into two categories. One would be for the wild and one would be for the safe. And you're obviously on the wild side, the terrier-esque side. And um, I just I just love that so much. Yeah, I don't feel unsafe in that, in that zone. Right. I, yeah. I actually feel personally, because of my ambivalence with the inherited poetics, the inherited European poetics, my ambivalence with that predictable kind of language makes me feel unsafe. I feel safer, in a sense, in the improvisatory, because I'm there. It's very much a mindful practice. It's very present. It's very immediate. I don't know what the next word will be. I'm so excited to discover what it might be and what it can be. And uh, that's what's, that's, so it's, there's an excitement, but I don't feel unsafe. Well, because you've 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 been there before, you know it comes out okay, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. It's it becomes it comes from you know as most musicians know it comes from you practice and practice and practice and you're so you can be ready for that moment when you can just do it. <laughs> it seems then a logical extension that rather than think about the poem by itself, and of course some of the people who came to lecture uh, in Vancouver, Jack Spicer chief among them, some of the people who came to live in Vancouver, Robin Blazer among them, talked about the serial poem rather than the epic poem. And you have been a fan of the serial. Maybe it's simply because you agree that with Spicer and Duncan that there's no such thing as the single poem, but maybe it's more to it than that. Why does the serial have appeal to you? I'm not sure I know what a serial poem is. I guess that's one of the reasons why it appeals to me. I've always been interested in well, first Spicer, of course, heads of the town, because Blazer was a was a close friend and, and in a sense a neighbor because he lived in Vancouver. His project, the Moth Poem, okay, his serial poem, Image Nation, and uh, the the whole, but how he was working with that was something that I tried to pay attention to as he moved through it. Now, I wasn't, I'm not so sure. I had certain ideas and uh, about what kind of quote unquote seriality was going on. And all I could figure out was that it was something that went on. It didn't end. So, and I'm very much come out of the, if you like, uh, uh, very, very attracted to that tradition of the long poem that is interested in avoiding the ending. So I, don't, I wouldn't call what I'm doing uh, a serial poem. Somebody else might. I don't, I mean, I didn't intend it to be quote unquote serial poem. I'm not sure what Spicer and Blazer, um, I've read about it, <laughs> you know, um, uh, heard people talk about it. I still don't quite understand compositionally when one is in a serial poem, 
what are there some rules are there are there some guidelines i'm not i don't know i i don't there might be a few i think i know spicer had certain quote unquote rules <laughs> in poetry perhaps he applied to um the notion of a serial poem and i know robin was very ambiguous about what some of those boundaries might be it's very hard to put to, you know to get him to articulate to me I, I found it very hard to get him to articulate something precise about how one proceeds in composing a serial poem i know what the like the moth poem is uh, to me the most wonderful example of seriality in that the moth is always there and i love that sense that there's something going on that's always there but you don't know what where it's going to be next you don't know when it's going to appear so what what do we call that i don't know uh yeah it's mysterious <laughs> surprise mind it comes to mind. I, I remember coming out of a um, sauna or something with an Igbo man from Nigeria, and there was a moth almost right in my face, so I kind of brushed it out of the way, and he said, hey, be careful. That might be your ancestor, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. Not necessarily that I'm the latest in a, in a line of moths, but that the ancestors could reincarnate and just to spend a little more time with us. Certainly, Blazer would uh, would hear you on that. I mean, he was very much interested in that dynamic of, uh, in a sense, that kind of eco-dynamic of the world around him as being possible. Duncan, uh, who I admire greatly and, and did some work with too, was was very much into the expansiveness of thought in the world and right down to those, as I say in the, in the simple, that notion of uh, the minute, truthful in particular, Olson's, Olson's thing, that the notion of anything particular, such as the lemon, such as the moth, such as, you know, those things can, they're there and, they're always there. So being aware of that kind of consistency, I think, is part of something that's going on. In Music at the Heart of Thinking, I know that I was always trying to be aware of this abstract idea called notation. In other words, but I was thinking of it in terms of how do I notate my mind? How do I notate the world? How do I how do I know, use language to notate anything? Uh, not so much, you know, just Olson's notation of the end of the line, and then that's where you stop breathing <laughs> uh, or start breathing or whatever. So, but notation as, yeah, notating the mind. How do you notate the mind? Or as Philip Whalen said, my poetry is a, a, a graph or map of my mind working, something like that. Moving, yeah. yeah. You talk about not knowing what the serial is, and yet the first edition of Music at the Heart of Thinking came out in 1987, and the most recent version came out in 2020. So there's there's a 33-year project. One would say that is has something to do with what a serial poem is. It's something that takes time. It's something that has some kind of content uh, that's similar, or in your case, composition process that's similar. So um, isn't this a good example of what a serial poem is? Well, Robin thought it was. Robin always, you know, he's when talking with Robin, he thought it was a serial poem, but I didn't, I still don't <laughs> quite. Um, <clears throat> because the poem, because it's a project, and I guess more to be more accurate about it from my own compositional use, it became a project that went on and a place in which I could read other texts, I could read other art, other music or music and pay attention to what I was hearing, listening to, seeing. I think that's the one thing that kind of I kind of hold on to here is that just is that all the pieces are 
bouncing off of usually another text or a, a piece of art or a piece of music or something out there. So it goes on and on. It's not there, you know, there, it's all numbered. It's not uh, one number one isn't is only connected to, to number two in that I'm still thinking of notating thinking. When you talk about that, how different things come into your life, different pieces of music or philosophy or news events or whatever, it reminds me of something you talk about, I guess it's in Music of the Heart of Thinking, the notion of a poetic journal or uta niki, which um, certainly was central to the first batch of poems in this series. Want to talk a little bit about the journal as I mean, you started to talk a little bit about that, the journal aspect of this, but how is this like the utaniki? It's not. Uh, I've written, uh, I've, I've done uh, utanikis, uh, several in my book Scree, and, and I've, um, I still have others that aren't included in this, in this book here. Utaniki is the poetic diary, if you like, uh, Basho's Journey to the North Provinces, and has been a great all of that has been a, a wonderful influence. Once again, that was a kind of thing that came through uh, BP because we were all interested in the mid eighties about how do we work in the long poem? Well, one of the, one of the most interesting long poems, not in Europe, but in from Asia was Basho's journey to the North provinces. And so <laughs> it kind of started with BP wrote a piece called you too, Nikki. <laughs> it, it was aimed at Nikki Drumbolis, uh, a friend of ours, but um so the whole notion of, of using the, and, and I really love that sense of interleafing poetry and prose. So Basho just saying, well, here we are at Lake Biwa today and it's a beautiful day and the sun was out and the pines were beautiful. And I wrote this little poem here and here it is. <laughs> and then back and forth and back and forth. But I wouldn't think of music at the heart of thinking as a as an Utaniki in that journal sense. You've mentioned BP Nickel a couple of times now. Number 51 in Music at the Heart of Thinking, page 68, has a sly allusion. It also mentions Mount Fuji while we're on the subject of Japanese things <laughs> like Basho. But maybe you could read that and we can talk about that. Everywhere I go here, here I go again. But even if I worked it out ahead of time, I'd do it. I know me. This train crosses all the Chinese rivers in Canada. Each one the same world water, the same trestle, same deep gully. In Japan, Mount Fuji no more than a quiet black Shinkansen tunnel out of sight, out of mind. And Dorn said, the stranger in town is the only one who knows where he's been and where he's going. I could see Pocatello's tracks. Your symbol as accent to the basic drum of consciousness lurks. Saint Am stutters and stumbles. These rails are only half continuous. <laughs> it well, was Saint Am is, yeah, is a reference to. Uh, uh, I don't know if Beep even had a Saint Am, uh, but <laughs> he, I give it to him in this poem. You know, Stam. Stutter, stammering and stuttering, stumbling. Saint uh, Saint Saint Dumble. Saint Dumble, yeah. And this is also one of the other things that seems to me in, in working, reading back through this, these texts is that um, a lot of this was going on at the same time that I was going through trying to resolve my Chinese Canadian hybridity, my mixed race background. And I had also spent several months living in Kyoto in Japan. So the, and the Japan and China were great attractions for me, and not, not just in terms of poetry, but history, the imagination, and so forth. All the Chinese rivers in Canada is, is this kind of jab at the fact that uh, you know, most of those rivers were crossed by the railroad by by Chinamen who had to build build the trestles <laughs> over them to their danger. So. Absolutely, yeah. And then be chased out of town in just about every town in North America where they were. Yeah, yeah, not just Canada and the States too. Yeah. 
um, particularly horrific incident in Tacoma. Um, in the simple, you mentioned Margaret Avison's notion that, quote, the state necessary to writing a poem is synesthesia. The detachment with stimulated emotion is the state in which a fleeting phrase or the glimpse of a remembered scene is a signal. Catch this now or it's gone forever. So you quoted that in your talk in the simple, and I'd love for you to elaborate on that. Margaret Avison was uh, the only Canadian poet at the 63 Poetry Conference in Vancouver. We had known about her, and she was an Eastern poet. Um, and here was a woman, there were only two women, Denise and her, Denise Levertov and Margaret Avison. But uh, I've always been very attracted to uh, Margaret Avison's, the seriousness of her, of her poetry. And it's a poetry that is certainly not improvisatory in, in the sense that uh, mine is, or that uh, say Olson's was, <clears throat> but it was very much a poetry of the mind, very much a poetry of working through uh, thought. And in Stan's book, this was kind of a, a thing that was able to get out of Stan's book, um, this notion of synesthesia that uh, that she talks about I'm just trying to find where she's you just, you just quoted it but it's basically it's basically proprioception you know if we want to talk about the body and and how the how the how that uh, how we frame how we frame the body Page 15, that... yeah, page 15, um, it's about halfway into that second paragraph on page 15. Oh, right, okay, yeah. Now, I had also, I, one of my favorite musicians to follow over the years has been Anthony Braxton, jazz sax player, but uh, composer, and his, I mean, his music is really like far out, way out there, if you like. Uh, but, and it's not that sort of, um, it's not there for pleasure. It's there for, uh, I don't know what it's there for, but it's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful mix of stuff. Now, Braxton works on a synesthetic basis in terms of his notation. And he notates his compositions with, uh, not with musical notes, but with, images of shapes and arrows and it's like a very abstract abstract little drawing if you like it's his notation i don't have one handy here but and i don't it doesn't have any meaning to anyone i mean you don't know what he means by all these sounds all these shapes and that but he claims he he hears sound as shape and color now that's a, in, apparently, in fact, um, a, a psychological or a medical or a scientific truth. That is, that some people can actually hear sounds as shape and color. I met a musician who only talks about sound in terms of color. Oh, you know, that's that's really orange. That's an orange. That's very orange. That that's that movement. That piece that's going on there. You know, and that type of thing. So synesthesia is a way of bringing together something in the emotive part of our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our souls, or whatever, our feelings, and placing it in, she says, the detachment with stimulated emotion is the state in which a fleeting phrase or the glimpse of a remembered scene is a signal. Catch this now or it's gone forever. And it's being on that precipice, on that edge of something that might happen, <laughs> right? And being aware, being, being open to the fact that, oh, there, that, that's something that's, that's an opening there. One of the simplest ways of explaining it for me, I think it, uh, when I was teaching, you know, writing, doing creative writing workshops and that, was something that... Uh, Creeley tuned me into, if you get stuck, you're writing 
and you get stuck, just go back and pick up a stitch. Just take one or two steps back and there's another syllable there. There's a different sound. Bring that sound up and just keep going. And it's a very simple way to uh, um, play, if you like, in the writing, is to be aware of, oh, there's that. I just stumbled over it and I wasn't even paying attention. I'm going to bring that up and move ahead. So it's that kind of, that's what I think Avison is referring to with that uh, signal that you have to grab it and move with it. As a person who's composed this way for 60 years, you obviously have that feeling that she's talking about, that heightened sense of awareness and think, oh my God, this is the state where a poem comes. And maybe it starts with a phrase or some image or maybe coots on the lake in front of you in my case or the sunset uh, bouncing off buildings on Mercer Island at this moment or something like that. But there's this feeling, oh, a poem can come on now. And I think that's the state that I've experienced and I think the state that she's talking about. And you also mentioned proprioception. And um, there was a poem, I believe it's called Another MHT. It's on page 18. And I'd written that down as one that potentially you could read and potentially that would lead into a discussion of proprioception. And maybe it will or maybe it won't, or maybe there are better ones in the book, but that might serve for now. Page 18, another MHT. Yeah, okay. Once thinking as feeling thought, then become simple and above, crows fly in no pattern, wounding the fibers through fur and spruce. Already system takes over voice. Today was beautiful, clear, crisp. The trees expect nothing, if not imprint or preprint of time. So surrounds all the birds, cause, last name, swoops through the air with feather, snow to not know the silent life, soft earth, guttural. What I mean is the quick body as it comes to the throat like that. It's that, yeah, it's just all of a sudden, you know, you're... <clears throat> It's in your it's in your throat. It's in your mouth. All, ah! It's there. And uh, I love that sense of, oh, that's there. And I love that presentness, uh, that immediate sense of tangibility, uh, that it's right there. Because Olson wrote an essay called Proprioception, and because of the fact that, and you mentioned it, over-intellectual or maybe not over-intellectual, I don't think you said that exactly, but an intellectual approach to the poem, there's almost a, um, a looking down on poetry that's embodied, looking down on that proprioceptive kind of awareness. Would you agree to that? How do you mean looking down on it? Well, I, mean, I, I, I think that the, the intellect is... Uh, uh, valued more than a, a fully embodied intellect. I don't think people really understand an intellect when it's embodied. I don't think people understood McClure's poems. He had to tell people to read the beast language out loud. The beast language is not something you read before you go to sleep. It's something where you experience the joy of saying things like grrr or grrr or ooh, that kind of stuff. So very much putting one's putting one back in one's body. He said that it came from Kundalini. I suspect that it might have come from his practice of Latihan, but that's that's to be debated. But I always feel that there's some kind of looking down on embodied intellect, and that disembodied intellect is really what's valued in many circles of the poetry community. But maybe- yeah, I mean, I just always, I loved what I loved about proprioception or about the, the fact that Olson even talked about it and put a name to it was that it brought me back to the body and how a lot of my earlier poetry, I, I worked in the bush as a timber cruiser. And so running through the bush and being like right in the trees and the, and the undergrowth and working hard in that uh, and the rhythm of that was a really important part of a lot of my earlier poetry. Um, and continued on. It informed, it informed a sense of working with language as a response to uh, the body and how the body's feeling. So 
it was it's kind of simple in a way it's not as uh, abstract as uh, perhaps Olson is <laughs> articulating in his essay I mean although it's what he's saying is a kind of medical thing I was really struck and surprised I had been doing talking about proprioception for years and and thinking about it and, and I thought oh well this is yeah it's just kind of this weird thing that Olson wrote a little essay about and it's there it's not and I was I got stung by a hornet one summer. I was about I was about to die. I mean, my, I got an anaphylactic shock right in my right in my eye, or right on my, and I passed out. And I, anyway, it's a long story. But I got to the hospital, and I was having trouble breathing and so forth. And uh, this nurse came up to me while I was on the gurney and just put her hands on my body and said, "Just go with it." Don't fight it. Just go with it. And all of a sudden, I did, and I did. I just, oh, okay, I'll just go with it. And that just, I stopped uh, convulsing. I thought I stopped, you know, I was able to breathe. My body calmed down. And I talked to her afterwards about it. And, and, she, and I said, gee, how did you, that was, that was amazing, you know, uh, what, what you did for me coming in. And she said, well, that's proprioception. And she said, that's a term in nursing that we use. <laughs> and I, oh, wow. You know, she, this was common to her, how she responds to people in trouble uh, with their bodies is to pay attention to, to pay attention to the body. So it's a very, it's kind of, you know, you know trust your gut and so forth like that but it's uh it's full it's uh it's a kind of full and and um holistic if you like uh sense of allowing the language to come from that place where you can feel your body can feel movement and engagement with the earth with the world it's that it's our skin, right? That, that's 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 what I think Olson was after was that that sense of the skin. If you, if you read his Mayan letters and and talks about how he gets on the bus down in the Yucatan and he's he's uh, he's being in Merida and he's being jostled around and he said, and these people they let me touch their skin. I, I can I can feel their skin. And this and he felt he was he felt so grateful that he could you know be involved with skin. And he talked a lot about uh, he talked a lot about that. I don't know if it's we talked about it in his writing or in his just in our in our classes or whatever. Uh, but that notion that our skin is a I remember trying to explain this to uh, a bunch of students in a class, and I said proprioception is like shoving your hand, shoving your arm down your mouth and down inside, right down in the stomach, and then just pulling everything out. And what have you got? It's all skin. <laughs> the inside is the skin <laughs> is outside. Right? And uh, that whole sense of uh, surface of how you're. Well, I can go on and on. I just, well, a I sense. A sense of where your body is in space. And we take it for granted until we get a bout of dizziness or until we get old and we miss that step because the proprioception is not as sharp as it once was. So I think it's a it's a sense of where your body is in the universe, the way you can, you know, scratch a certain place without looking at it or 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 do any number of things that we we take for granted because we develop it until we we get old and those the senses are, are not as sharp, I think. So Yeah, and compositionally, you know, working in language and you know as a poet, then I've, I'm looking for ways that, that that the poetry can engage it, the body proprioceptively. I want the poetry, I want the language to be able to be there and respond to what's going on in the in how I feel about the language. So blah, blah, one, blah. <laughs> one last question. I know we've had you on for a while and I'm very grateful for that. But um, you mentioned late in uh, the simple, um, the notion that you, in fact, you quote a Phyllis Webb poem. And we just lost her about a month ago. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what 
Phyllis what meant to you um, in your own life and work and what do you think she meant to um, you know uh, I'll say North American poetry I don't think she's well known in the States yet but I think she's uh, an important person in North American poetry can you talk about your friendship with her I don't think Phyllis is presently that well known in Canadian poetry either uh, she's uh, she disappeared she stopped writing poetry quite a number of years ago and turned to painting but she was an older poet than myself and I first met her at UBC as an instructor there I didn't take any classes from her but she came to our we had these lectures in Warren Tallman's living room and we had a series of lectures by Robert Duncan early on and uh, we all chipped in five bucks and Robert took the Greyhound bus up to San Francisco and gave these talks to us. And I remember Phyllis Webb coming into these talks and she was very attentive. She sat up front. She then later worked with Robert, went to San Francisco and, and talked with him a lot. And uh, she became, uh, although she had been writing poetry for a number of years as a, as a young, as a Canadian poet, she really got onto the, really sort of hooked onto the, Black Mountain poets and uh, what they were trying to do. She didn't necessarily become like them, but her poetry was always very kind of finely tuned, well-informed. Some of it, like this poem that I, the poem that I love of hers, a poem called Leaning, is just a beauty. I mean, it's just like it does so much uh, and talks about so much of what I'm interested in thinking about and hearing. So she was for me, uh, I, I don't know, I don't have a word for it. She was a, a pretty major poet and a pretty major, a, a, a beautiful mind. I loved how she responded to the world and how she could talk about art and poetry and so forth, so. Want to hear her poem? I'd love to. I think that'd be a great way to end. It's a fantastic poem. I think it's it's one of the best best poems there are. <laughs> it's in her it's in her book, Water and Light: Gazelles and Anti Gazelles. Leaning. I am halfway up the stairs of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Don't go down, you are in this with me too. I'm leaning out of the Leaning Tower, heading into the middle distance, where a fur blue star contracts, becomes the ice pond Bruegel's figures are skating on. North Magnetic pulls me like a flower out of the perpendicular, angles me into outer space an inch at a time the slouch of the ground. Do you hear that? The hiccup of the sludge about the stone? Rodin in Paris is amanuensis a torso. I must change my life or crunch over in vertigo, hands bloodying the inside tower walls, lichen and dirt under the fingernails, Parsifal vocalizing in the crazy night, my sick head on the table where I write, slumped one degree from the horizontal, the whole culture leaning the phalli of Mies, Columbus returning, stars all shot out. And now this, smelly tourists shuffling around my ears, climbing into the curvature. They have paid good lira to get in here. So have I. So did Einstein and Bohr. Why should we ever come down, ever? And you, are you still here? Tilting in this stranded arc, blind and seeing in the dark? I just, oh God, that's, <laughs> that's a beauty. <laughs> Fred, thanks for your time. I love the way your mind responds to the world as well. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Paul. Cascadian Prophets is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at cascadiapoeticslab.org.